Our reading today is from Genesis 28, verses 10 to 22. And Haley's going to come and read that to us now. Meanwhile, Jacob left Bathsheba and travelled toward Haran. At sundown, he arrived at a good place to set up camp and stop there for the night. Jacob found a stone to rest his head against and lay down to sleep. As he slept, he dreamed of a stairway that reached the earth up to heaven, and he saw the angels of God going up and down the stairway. At the top of the stairway stood the Lord, and he said... I am the Lord, the God of your grandfather, Abraham, and the God of your father, Isaac. The ground you are lying on belongs to you. I am giving it to you and your descendants. Your descendants will be as numerous as the dust of the earth. They will spread out in all directions, to the west and the east, to the north and the south, and all the families of the earth will be blessed through you and your descendants. What's more, I am with you, and I will protect you wherever you go. One day, I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have finished giving you everything I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I wasn't even aware of it. But he was also afraid and said, What an awesome place this is. It is none other than the house of God, the very gateway to heaven. The next morning, Jacob got up very early. He took the stone he had rested his head against, and he set it upright as a memorial pillar. Then he poured olive oil over it. He named that place Bethel, which means house of God, although the name of the nearby village was Luz. Then Jacob made this vow. If God will indeed be with me and protect me on this journey, and if he will provide me with food and clothing, and if I return safely to my father's home, then the Lord will certainly be my God. And this memorial pillar I have set up will become a place for worshipping God. I will present to God a tenth of everything he gives me. Thanks, Haley. Let's just pray before Lou comes up. Father, we thank you for that reading. And we thank you for all the preparation that has gone into this morning. We thank you for Lou and for what she's about to bring to us, Father. And I pray that we will really be able to listen and take hold of everything she has to say to us this morning. Amen. Morning. Good to see you all this morning. I hope you've all had a good half term week. Hmm. Good. <laughs> Deary me. I don't know. So, we're continuing on in this new sort of series of talks that we started last week as we kicked off uh, Lent. 
And uh, we're using material, as I said, from the London Institute for Contemporary Christianity, and it's called Frontlines. Talking about your front line, not the knit and flea treatment for dogs and cats and other furry animals. Um, and last week, as we kicked that off, we, we were thinking about the fact that we are all called, as followers of Jesus, to be those who make all the difference in the world. All the difference in the world. That's quite a big calling, isn't it? Don't you feel that? You don't? <laughs> and it's great that you don't. I mean, that's brilliant. If you don't feel that's a big calling, go, fill your boots, get on with it. That's great. But I feel a bit overwhelmed by it myself that I am called to be making all the difference in the world. I mean, in my teenage years, I thought I was going to completely change the world for God, but that's when you're a teenager, you know, and you have no embarrassment glands and, and you just think you can do everything. As you get older, you start getting embarrassed about everything, don't you? And you start realizing that you can't do those things that you thought you did. So it's an overwhelming thought, I think, that we are called as followers of Jesus to be those who make all the difference in the world. We are, uh, there's about 6% of uh, the population in this country who are Christians. That makes the thought that we're to go and make all the difference in the world even more daunting, I think. Just 6% of us. Oh, sorry, is the, is the PowerPoint up, Malcolm? Or maybe I've not turned this on. Anyway, let's just carry on. We're called to be 6% six, six of the Christian. We follow, we talked a little bit about this last week, that we follow this rhythm of gathering and scattering in a way that we gather together on Sundays and on other days, maybe to worship and to pray and to read Bible together and to do that kind of stuff. That's brilliant, thank you. But then for quite a lot of our week, we are scattered into lots of very different places like that uh, graphic shows, we are gathered together and we seem like, you know, quite a small little group there. And yet in the week, we are scattered to the various places that we are called to be. But as we are scattered in those places, we remember that each one of us is chosen by the God who created the universe. And that as we go to those scattered places, maybe we do feel a little bit like foreigners in those places, foreigners to our culture and our way of being and the mindset of quite a lot of people who maybe don't give Jesus a second thought. But we go realizing that we are qualified to be who we are and that will always be enough. Because the person who calls us is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And it was Paul in writing to the Corinthian church who said, our competence comes from God. So it's an overwhelming thought that we are called to be those who make all the difference in the world, even though there's so few of us, but our competence to do all of that comes from God. Thank you. That is a bit of an amen statement, isn't it? Because what we do, we do not do because we are clever and capable. We do because we are empowered by the very Spirit of God. The very Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, who is at work within each one of us as we follow Jesus. Our competence comes from God. So as we thought last week about being those who make all the difference in the world, this week we make all the difference in the world wherever we are. Wherever we are. We are called to make all the difference in the world. I want you to think about the variety of places that you have found yourself in just this last week. 
It's quite interesting for me because we've been out of the country. <laughs> but you just think about it. The variety of places that you will have been just in this last week. Was there anything special about those places? Maybe some of them you thought, yeah, there's something quite special about them. Maybe some of you were like, no, not really, because it's like a space and a place I go to very often. It's just the place where I go. Is there any reason in those places that you've thought of in your mind that you might not be able to encounter God? Any reason? And probably you're going to go, well, no, because I believe that you can encounter God anywhere. So my question is, have you? Have you encountered God in those places that you've been into this week? Have you? I've got a video clip that I'd just like for us to show, which hopefully when I click the button on here, should work. Ten hours a day. Six days a week. Whenever I'm needed. Every Saturday morning. I spend my time. In a place that matters to God. With people that matter to God. My front line. In the stresses. Successes. Problem solving. Tantrum resolving. <laughs> Laughter. Teamwork. Jokes. Tears. Boredom. Tension. Cups of coffee. Cans of coke. God is working with me. He helps me see what he sees. Put here by God. He knows the day ahead. This place is rich with possibilities. This is my front line. because it comes with the material, I think it's worth it, and it just helps you to remember where your front lines are and to realise that they are all very different. Very different. And as we think a little bit about the story that we heard in that first book of the Bible, Genesis 28, that was read to us brilliantly by Haley this morning about Jacob, I want us just to think a little bit about that as we think about being those who make all the difference in the world wherever we are. Now, Jacob isn't really the uh, nicest sounding bloke to have ever graced the pages of our scriptures, to be honest with you. I mean, I'm not saying he's, you know, terrible, but he's not the nicest chap in the world. A little bit before the story that we heard this morning, he was, um, in, he, 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 as the youngest brother of the uh, family, he tricked in a very deceitful way his elder brother out of the traditional and customary blessing that was rightly his. And he did it in a terrible way. 
He did it by playing on the frailty and the blindness of his elderly father. He dressed up in his older brother's clothes. He put animal skins on his arms to make him feel more like his much hairier brother. And uh, he tricked his old dad and he got the blessing that should have been his brother's, the blessing that should have been Esau's. And Esau, as you can imagine, was a bit annoyed about this and uh, basically vowed that he was going to kill his little brother. Uh, these, this is the sort of thing that plays out in quite a lot of families, isn't it? Is it not? I mean, not that you vowed to go. I mean, you know, there were times when I did think horrible things about my little brother. Maybe you just have to be the eldest in the family to know how smaller younger siblings really do drive you to these things. I don't know. But I think if you are the eldest, you know that there will have been times, even maybe when you haven't verbalised it, that you've thought, you know what? I'll proper do you in, I will, if you carry on like this. You do. You know, let's be honest about it. The Lord knows I thought that. And I probably said it to my brother too. But anyway, um, Jacob, Esau basically is so annoyed at this, he vows he's going to kill his little brother once his dad had died, because that obviously made it all right. And... um, You see, this is the wonderful thing about our scriptures, you see. You think your family's a nightmare. Maybe you don't. I don't know. But if you do, take heart. Because some of the families within scripture are so messed up, it is unreal. You know, absolutely unreal. This was a truly dysfunctional family, this family. Jacob's family. Rebecca, Jacob's mum... Isaac's wife favoured Jacob. Oh, he was her favourite. Much more her favourite over Esau. But Isaac favoured Esau over Jacob. I mean, you can see why the rivalry was set there between the brothers, can't you? Now, Rebecca hears Esau's threat and his vow to kill the brother that she really likes. So she decides she's got to act to ensure the safety of her favorite, and she suggests to him that Jacob ought to scarp her off to her brother's family because he'll be out of the way of Esau, and Esau won't be able to lay a finger on him. So when we catch up with Jacob here, this is what is happening. Jacob is basically on the run, not because he's a victim, but because he's a deceiving little brat. And he's really running away from what's coming to him that rightfully was coming to him because he'd done something horrible. This is where we are catching up with him here. He is on the run. He has no idea really what is in store for him. He has no idea what direction his life is going to take. He just knows he has to stay away from Esau because if he doesn't, he will die. Now, it would be true to say here, I think, that with all of that going on, he must have actually felt very alone and quite fearful of what was going to happen. He was facing an incredible amount of uncertainty. And so he stops for the night to rest. Now, I'm not sure about the comfort ratings given for a stone as a pillow, but he was obviously very tired. And he sleeps. And as he does, he has this dream This dream where heaven and earth are connected by a ladder and on this ladder angels are going up and down and at the top of this ladder, at the top of this stairway, God is and God speaks. Despite being a runaway, despite being a scheming little deceiver who's stolen a birthright in this ordinary, out of the way, insignificant place, Jacob encounters God. It's an encounter that means he leaves that place different to how he'd arrived in it. 
because he has encountered God. This unexpected place has become a place of encounter and also of transformation. God meets Jacob in a very ordinary place. In an ordinary place. And I think as we look at this story, it's very easy for us to rush over the very central point of it. The central point is this. God meets with Jacob. Despite who Jacob is, despite what Jacob has done, God meets with Jacob. It sounds like the sort of church talk, I think, oh, God's met with Jacob, that most, maybe we just accept in church surroundings, but possibly we'd be suspicious about in other places, I think. Outside the church, maybe, we might want to ask some questions. Did he just imagine it all? Did he imagine it all? I mean, let's be honest, it could be possible that he did. He was obviously a bit stressed out, wasn't he? Tired, probably hadn't eaten. His blood sugars were all over the place, I would imagine. Worn out. Did he imagine it? Was it because of the stress he was under? But Walter Brueggemann, great theologian, uh, said in his commentary on Genesis, neither of these things will do because the story shatters our presuppositions because it insists this one thing. The world is a place of such meetings. The world is a place of such meetings. So if it's easy to rush over that amazing part of the story, we then try to make it a bit safer for ourselves by thinking that we are most likely to meet God, not in ordinary places, but in holy places. We're most likely to meet God in holy places, special places, places like churches and chapels and prayer rooms. Let me tell you, this week we've been in Bologna in Italy and it was very nice. And uh, I've been able to pray my morning office in some very, very old, ancient churches I've gone into. And I said to Ian, they're really nice places I've been into. But I was taken away by one, you know. I went and sat in this place that was reserved because it's rammed with people taking pictures of this and that. And they say, be quiet, it's a place of prayer. Everybody's going, well, you'll look at that. They are normally American going in there with their cameras. Um, But I went into this little place, went down into the crypt, reserved for quiet prayer, silent prayer. I thought, that's where I'm going to sit. I'm going to sit in there. I'm going to do my morning office. Just sit quietly. And even in there, they came. But they didn't say it out loud. They just went, it's really quiet in here. It's very old, isn't it? Look at that. And I'm sitting there thinking, please, Lord, stop me thinking horrible things about them. But what I meant was this. They're in this place of encounter. And yes, we can say, oh, we can encounter God anywhere, but they missed the point. This place was open, and this particular place was open so that you could go in and talk to God. But they missed the point because they were looking at lots of other stuff. I think we do the same. We think that we are only likely to meet God in a holy place, but actually... The Bible is quite clear that most of the time, God meets people all over the place and sometimes in the place where they might least likely expect him to be. He meets Moses at a burning bush. He meets Elijah, not in some whirlwind and and lightning storm, but in a whisper at the doorway to a cave. Jesus meets Zacchaeus stuck up a tree. He meets a woman at a well well. 
who's just doing her daily tasks. He meets Peter at his workplace on a beach. He meets Mary Magdalene looking for him in a tomb, but she's finding him standing behind her. Most of the encounters that we read about in the life of Jesus do occur in everyday, ordinary places. Matthew Henry said, no place excludes divine visits, not even churches, if you're open to it. There have been incredible stories, though, of places where people have encountered God in prisons, in schools, in homes, workplaces, squash courts, pubs, fields, etc., and it still happens. God is everywhere. God is here in all of these different places. The question is, is our expectation that we might meet with God or that we might encounter God in those places? Or do we treat our ordinary places a bit like airports? We were commenting on this as we sat in the airport this week. Airports are strange places, aren't they? They're really strange places because airports are never a place where you want to go. They're always a place you have to be because you want to go somewhere else. They're very strange places. Very few places are like that, are they? You don't go, I think I might go to the airport today. (laughs) Unless you're the sort of person that goes with binoculars looking at planes and making an out of them in a book. In which case, fine, fill your boots, go for it. But they are strange places because you go to them, not because you want to be there, because who really does, unless you're that sort of person, you go there because you want to go somewhere else. Sometimes we treat our ordinary places a bit like airports. We don't concentrate on the place because we're heading somewhere else. It's just a passing place. It's not a chosen end place. It's not a destination for the day because we've got our sights on what's happening after or where we're going. We're looking in other places. And when we do that, we can't see what's just around us. And yet no place, even those ordinary places, would exclude a divine visit. But sometimes our expectations are nil. We don't expect to meet God there because it's not where we're going. God met Jacob in an ordinary place, a really ordinary place. And he also transformed that ordinary place into a very holy place. For most travellers, this place where Jacob is is a stopping-off place. It's somewhere handy to spend the night, but for Jacob, this very ordinary place becomes extraordinary. It becomes extraordinary because it is a touching point between heaven and earth. And Jacob renames that place Bethel, which means literally the house of God. And this is what we mean, I think, by front lines. The ordinary places that become touching places between God and his world, that, that they might know his, places where they don't know his love, that they might know his love. In the film in the, uh, that we just looked at, the ordinary places that become holy places, uh, for the plumber, well, it was the customer's house, for the grandma, the front room, for the businesswoman, the office, for the football coach, it's the pitch. When we go to our ordinary places in the name of Jesus, they become touching points between heaven and earth. Holy, 
aware of the presence and the perspective and the plan of God. And I wonder whether we've ever viewed our ordinary places in that kind of a way. Places that could become holy places. Places of encounter. Do you know, there's a, a great book written by a chap called Alan Scott. He's a, he's a leader in the vineyard in Northern Ireland. It came out a few years ago now, but it's called Scattered Servants. I remember being so challenged, actually, when I read that book. He was talking about the church being gathered and scattered. So really a bit like how we're talking about the rhythm of church as a gathering and scattering community. But he told this brilliant story about one of their interns, who was called Ray, who dropped somebody off at the airport and then called into a department store on the way home just to pick a couple of items up. And the cashier who she went to at this department store mentioned her accent. And, you know, like, you don't come from around here, do you? Hopefully in a friendly way. Um, and she said, well, that, I don't. No, you're right, because I'm from Brazil. And the cashier was a bit curious, as you would be in Northern Ireland, wondering why somebody from Brazil was there. Uh, and so she told them why she was there, that she was an intern with, with the church and all this kind of stuff. And this cashier wanted to know a little bit more about this. And Ray sort of said, well, I can, I'll, I'll, do you want me to pray for you? I can pray. Oh, that would be great. Um, so she, she, she prayed and uh, she started crying a little bit. And uh, she ended up accepting Jesus at the till. But she was quite overwhelmed with emotion. So she couldn't really process the order. So she went to get somebody else to come and process the order for Ray. And uh, the next cashier comes over and said, well, kind of what's going on? And, and Ray explained to her, and this one wanted to know a little bit more about what that was as well. So said she'd have a prayer too. And as Ray was praying with her, she had a picture of somebody with loads of self-help help books around her. So she mentioned it to this second cashier. I've just had this picture. I don't know what it means, but maybe it's... A and this woman then started crying as well, accepted Jesus, and she was in such a pickle, she couldn't do the order as well. So they had to go and get another cashier. So we're on the third one now. The third one comes over and goes, what's going on? Why, why, you know, is there a problem with the till? They explain what happened. And, uh, and the same thing sort of happened, really. Yeah, she had quite liked prayer because she got a really bad back and there was a risk she could lose her job about it because she couldn't do what she was supposed to do. She had a meeting with the manager that afternoon and Ray said, well, would you like me to pray for your back? I, I might I pray for your back. So she prayed for her back and the result was that the pain significantly improved and she could bend over and touch her toes. So she decided that she'd accept Jesus as well. But fortunately, she did manage to process the order. <laughs> but it just goes to show how this ordinary place became transformed into a holy place because it was a place where heaven and earth just touched and incredible things happened and people encountered God. It was a holy place because the people that entered into that place, that ordinary place, left it different because they'd encountered something of Jesus. This place where God encountered Jacob and Jacob encountered God Jacob marked it with a stone. He placed a stone there. God assures Jacob he hasn't finished with him yet. God's purposes are going to be worked out through Jacob. Jacob has been a schemer his whole life, and that's why he's on the run. But in this place, he hears the voice of God who reassures him, God is going to be the one who will make the difference through Jacob in all of the places he finds himself in. 
And Jacob owns this place. Jacob knows that it's significant. Jacob met God in a dream. And I wonder whether that's significant too. We've already thought this morning with what Andrea has said about how sometimes we need to learn to slow down and be with God. Because we are human beings, not human doings. Which sounds very wrong. Um, We are human beings. We are human beings. And very often we are not, we we find it difficult to be. We find it far more easy to do than to be. Maybe it's significant that Jacob meets God in a dream. Maybe it's as we slow down that we allow ourselves to become aware of God's presence with us. We become more mindful of that. When you go through the doors into the places that you will find yourselves during this week, I wonder whether you might be able to go with an expectation that God can be at work there that you might slow down a little as you walk through those doors and remind yourself that you're going to a really ordinary place, but it's an ordinary place that can be transformed by the presence of a holy God. With an expectation, you might walk through those doors into those places that God can be and is at work there already, And that you might be able to see where you could join in in what he's already doing. So as we sit here, gathered this morning, think back to those places that you're going to be this time tomorrow, if you know. Think about those places that you're going to be when we're all scattered. Picture them. Think about the doorways into them and out. And maybe ask that as you go from here today, as you go out into the ordinary places of your routine weekly life, that you might go as those who are expecting encounters with God. That you might go into your ordinary places, but remember that you go into those places carrying the presence and the power of Jesus Christ with you. And those ordinary places are therefore places of holy encounter. Places filled with God's presence. Places that are part of the plans and the purposes of God. I wonder whether you see that or whether you are aware of that in those places where you will be. Broken communities, you see, need more than bigger churches. Broken communities need more than better services. Broken communities need a new reality and an alternative story. Broken communities don't just need culturally relevant churches. Broken communities need the church to show up beyond the building in the power of God's Holy Spirit. Broken communities need tender hearts who show up with love and grace. None of us can impress our communities and our frontline places into life, but we can immerse them in the life to come. We can be those who bring the very life and presence of Jesus into everyday, ordinary places. Let's pray. And as last week, the words of the prayer is going to, are going to be on the screen. And if you want to join in saying it with me, you can. If not, please just feel free to sit quietly and listen. Lord of all creation, 
Thank you that our everyday, ordinary places matter to you and we make a difference there. We offer to you the places where we live, work, study and play. May we serve you and bear witness to you wherever we are this week. And may we know your presence with us in these places. Amen.